Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Uh, and my guest this week is Raphael Mongal. Mongual, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a hard oh, to pronounce name myself, so I am <laughs> kicking myself. Uh, but he is the Nick O'Hell Fellow and Head of Research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, um, and a member of the Council on Criminal Justice. But what we're talking about today is this incredible book, um, his first book, I believe, uh, that was yeah. released just in July of 2022. And it's called Criminal Injustice. Um, and it's a really in-depth look at um, not just the statistical realities of crime in the United States, but some, some very depressing statistical realities about uh, the possibility of re rehabilitation, the purposes of the criminal justice system, the debates over incarceration and incarceration rates. Um, it just has so much really important data that, that reflects um, really I mean, the, the basic assumption uh, of safety um, and, and for whom that assumption holds in this country and for whom it does not. Uh, but Raphael, I want to start with this. Um, you know, we see all of these like uh, sort of tweets and even journal articles denying um, that there actually is an uptick in crime, denying mm -hmm. that the what I think every person I would think would be obvious to every person who lives in an urban environment um, in the United States knows, and that is that comparatively to 2018 or 2019, things have gotten more dangerous. So is there a crime wave? What's the evidence that we have for that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly been a massive increase in, in crime, particularly serious violent crime shootings and homicides. Um, but lots of cities in the last couple of years have also seen big spikes in things like car thefts and grand larcenies and robberies and burglaries. You know, this is just a, a, a question of statistical fact. The denial, you know, was interesting and it often is presented in the form of like, yeah, well, crime may have gone up a bit recently, but we're nowhere near, you know, as bad as things were in, in the early 1990s, which, you know, is true in some respects and for some people, but certainly not in every respect and not for everyone. And so the two responses that I usually have to that line uh, of argument is that one, why on earth should we be using um, uh, the, the, a period of time when crime was the worst that it's ever been in, in modern history as the point of comparison, right? Why not compare ourselves to when crime was at a near all-time low in 2018? Um, and then the second question is, is like, for who is that true, right? Like crime may not be as bad as it was in the 1990s in the aggregate, if you aggregate the entire country, but no one lives in the entire country at the same time, right? You live in a particular place at a particular time, which means that some people are living in places where things are as dangerous as they've ever been, right? And and so, you know, I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal um, a little over a year ago now, where I kind of went through more than two dozen cities that since 2020 have either um, uh, surpassed their all-time uh, homicide highs or have come really, really close to surpassing their all-time homicide highs. Um, and what that gets at is a really important reality that often gets uh, elided when we talk about crime and crime increases. And that is that, you know, crime is a, a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon that affects very, very small slices of America in very, very big ways. Um, and that affects, you know, a very small uh, subset of the population living in those slices of America in a very big way. And so, you know, if you consider cities like Cincinnati or Cleveland, Louisville, Kentucky, Baltimore, um, you know, these are cities that are seeing crime rates that are or homicide rates that are literally um, as high as they've been in, in decades. You look at other cities 
you know, like St. Louis and Chicago. Um, and, you know, you have to go back into the mid 1990s to, you know, reach the levels of homicides that the people in those communities are seeing. And so, you know, it really is kind of silly that people would respond to a 30% increase in homicides at the national level, which is what this country saw in 2020 with a, a kind of denialist um, rhetorical approach um, rather than take the problem head on. Um, and I think that does a real disservice to the people who are living in those pockets of crime where, like I said, things are literally as bad as they've ever been. Yeah. There, there's now, I think it's evolving into a different kind of denial or I guess cover story um, recently we've seen, especially, I mean, my family comes from California my husband's family comes from Oakland. Um, you know, and I have a lot of friends living in like LA and, and other places where crime is, is spiking. Um, and, and we're starting to get the defense that this is just what urban living is. And mm. if, if you are shocked by the fact that your car is regularly broken into, um, and don't want to live that way, then, well, you just must want to lose move to the suburbs. Like there, there's this gritty narrative that's maybe, um, somewhat uh like uh helped along by hollywood and 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 uh, some of the 90s revival right i saw taxi driver is playing at the paris theater in manhattan now um you know so what was it really like to live in america's urban cores when crime was incredibly high in, in the 80s and 90s yeah it wasn't that pleasant i mean i i, I mean, i'm born in 1986 um and i grew up in in brooklyn for the first you know 10 and a half years of my life um, and you know, we, my family would take the radio out of the car if we ever had to park on the street and people would put signs in their car window, no radio in car, please don't break in. Um, you know, I had, um, uh, neighbors who had their houses broken into on multiple, uh, occasions. I witnessed crimes even as a, as a child, um, uh, you know, just in broad daylight, walking to and from school. Um, you know, it was not a, a great thing, this idea that we should be nostalgic about a period of time in which we weren't able to take public safety for granted, um, I think is just incredibly silly and is something that's probably more common among people who didn't actually experience day-to-day um, -day life. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, all I wanted was this one particular bike. I wanted a Chrome GT Dyno. Uh, and my parents would not get that bike for me until we actually moved to the suburbs because they were afraid of, you know, putting me in a position where I might be victimized, where that bike might get taken out from under me. Um, you know, that's no way to live. And, you know, you know, for people who are living in, in really dangerous places, even now, places like the west side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago, you know, the southwestern district of Baltimore, um, you know, the north side of Philadelphia. I mean, you're talking about places in which, like, the public safety picture is incredibly dark. I mean, it was a study that came out in JAMA Network recently that looked at a handful of neighborhoods around uh, the United States today and actually concluded that for young males living in those places, the homicide rate is higher than the death rate for American soldiers fight, fight it, that were fighting on the front lines of Iraq and Afghanistan at the height of those conflicts, um, which should really give you a sense of, of you know, just how ugly um, reality can get and how quickly it can get there. I mean, you know, just put yourself in the shoes of a, you know, of a mother who was, you know, sending her 18 year old uh, son off to the Marines in 2002 or 2003. And the fear that, you know, would have come with, with, you know, that decision thinking like, okay, my son's going to go off to war. And now sort of imagine what it's like if you're living in a place every single day of your life that you can't leave. And, and that place is, the single most dangerous place that your young son can be. 
where their likelihood of dying is higher than their likelihood of, of graduating from college. I mean, you know, so, so it's nothing to be nostalgic about. Um, and, you know, this idea that it's just part and parcel of urban living couldn't be further from the truth. And it's belied by the, the public safety gains that were made over the course of the 1990s and, you know, into the, the, the mid to late 2000s. I mean, in, you know, in 2017, New York City had 292 murders. In 1990, we had 2,262 murders. That was an enormous amount of progress. It became a city over that period of time in which you could ride the subway at two o'clock in the morning by yourself, fall asleep and be safe. You know, this is this is not a um, you know, this isn't an intellectual argument. We know that we can get to a place in which urban living is as safe as suburban living. And, you know, the idea that we should just accept um, some level of, of, of public safety deterioration that's recent. Right. I mean, you know, this wasn't true in 2019 in a lot of places or 2018 in a lot of places that we should just accept that as, you know, part of urban life, I think, is is a defeatist attitude that does a great disservice to the people who are you know living in cities and to people who, like me, think that cities are incredibly important to the future of American life. I mean, cities are places where, you know, you can have economic dynamism and you can have you know, brilliant people come from around the world to share ideas and to interact and to engage in commerce. And, you know, that that's a big part of our country's fabric to, to sort of throw that away or sacrifice, you know, that to, to what some, you know, some, some uh, public policy approach that makes you feel good on the inside, but, you know, maybe costs us uh, a decent amount of public safety. I mean, that, that just seems a little silly to me. Um, I, I knew obviously from a common sense perspective that, you know, some intersections are more dangerous than others. Right. Um, but I, I was shocked, uh, you, you know, you lay it out sometimes block by block and what the most dangerous blocks in America look like comparatively, um, to the problems that are faced in a more like sort of, um, universal or public way. Um, can you lay out some of that data for us? And then you, we can't talk about crime without talking about race. Um, yeah. And and so um, what what effect what are the first of all, what are the underlying statistical um, offense rates of different races, particularly? I think we're, we're going to be talking about primarily young black men. Right. Um, and, and then uh, what on the flip side, um, what are, are the statistics on people who are victims of this kind of, of violent crime? Yeah, and the victimization point is really, I think, the important one. But let's start with the geographic concentration of crime, right? I mean, at, you know, every single year in the United States, um, somewhere in the range of 2% of counties are going to see about half of all the murders. And within those counties, the homicide problem, shootings, other kinds of violent crime are just incredibly, incredibly concentrated. So take New York City, for example. New York City has about 80,000 street segments. And a street segment, for those of you who don't know, just think one side of a city block, right? Like corner to corner, both sidewalks. That's one street segment. So there are 82,000 of those, uh, give or take, um, in, in New York City. In 2010, 15, and 20, the Manhattan Institute studied uh, in, a, in a paper authored by a guy named David Weisberg, um, the concentration of crime at the street segment level in New York City in those years. And what we found was that about three and a half percent of street segments were responsible for about 50 percent of all the violent crime in New York City. About one percent of the street segments were responsible for 25 percent of all the violent crime. And some really high number, I think it was almost 40% of street segments didn't see any crime uh, 
in in a given year. So, you know, that that just gives you a sense of just how hyper concentrated serious violence is. Um, and, and that's something that's that's an analysis that's been replicated in cities across the country, indeed, in other parts of the world. I mean, you know, places like um, Seattle and Chicago, I mean, you see the exact same thing. Somewhere in the range of about 5% of a city street segments are going to see somewhere in the range of about half of all of that city's violent crime. What that means is that, you know, if policing resources are responsibly deployed, there are, you know, officers are going to spend disproportionate amounts of time in those areas. And that's really important to recognize because it helps contextualize some of the racial disparities that I think end up being at the root of a lot of the debates that we have about, you know, what good public safety policy looks like. Um, you know, as you know, we're in a period of reform, really, for the last 10, 15 years, and the reform movement has enjoyed a lot of momentum. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, they have been able to really lean into a racial justice narrative, um, you know, to kind of push their agenda forward. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's, you know, a, a fair argument to make. But if we're going to have the argument honestly on those terms, we have to sort of can, uh, understand what the context is and understand that data in its proper context. And so when you consider, again, the fact that, you know, crime is so hyper-concentrated geographically, and you start to see that certain demographic groups are overrepresented in those pockets of, of concentrated violence, you start to get a sense of who the victims of these more serious crimes um, are and what they look like. And so in New York City, again, for example, every single year for which we have data, which goes back to 2008, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims in the city are either Black or Latino. Almost all of them are men. Right. Black and Latino men do not constitute anywhere near 95 percent of New York City's population. Right. So this is a very, very stark and very, very persistent racial disparity with respect to victimization of the most serious kind, gun violence victimization. Now, gun violence perpetration uh, statistics would look very, very similar. Again, you would see a massive overrepresentation of young black and Latino males. Well, that has to be taken into account when you're looking at uh, enforcement disparities, because, again, if police resources are responsive to the crime problem and where it concentrates, which is what you would want if, in fact, you're prioritizing the lives of you know, potential victims, well, then that means you're going to have disparities in enforcement. But you cannot take those disparities to be prima facie evidence of discrimination in a case like that. Um, and so, you know, again, just kind of going back to this idea that crime isn't as bad as the 1990s, this is another opportunity, I think, to evaluate that claim. You know, it's not as bad as it was in the 1990s, again, generally speaking, in the aggregate. But again, no one experiences crime in the aggregate, right? We experience crime as individuals based on, you know, a, a, a list of risk factors. Most important of those are where we are at a given time. Um, and if you look at just firearm homicide rates, for example, and you were to track those rates between 1990 and 2021, what you would find... If you broke it down by race, <clears throat> that white males have a firearm homicide rate that has stayed in the single digits from the early 1990s through present day. And then that line has remained relatively flat. For Hispanic men, you would see a pretty steep decline from 1990 uh, to present day, although in recent years, you know, uh, an upward trend that, that should certainly be troubling. But by and large, uh, Hispanic men have retained a lot of the progress that was made over the course of the 1990s and 2000s with respect to the reduction um, in, in uh, firearm homicide. But for black males, 
all of the progress that was made over the course of the 1990s has been erased. So if you were to plot that line, it would be really, really high um, in the early 1990s. Excuse me. <clears throat> so you would be looking at a, a rate of about close to 60 per 100,000 um, in the early 1990s, and then a very, very steep decline through the 1990s into the early 2000s. And so it would look like a U because by 2021, the firearm homicide rate for black males actually reached the early 1990s peak of close to 60 per 100,000 again. Now, remember that the white male homicide uh, rate for firearm homicide is in the single digits. And that should just give you a sense of what that disparity looks like. And just to kind of provide a more concrete example to tie this, um, to tie this knot is take Chicago. So in 2019, right, the, the United States had a, a homicide rate collectively of about five per 100,000. In Chicago that year, it was in excess, uh, it was close to about 18 per 100,000. If you look at just the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in that city, it was over 60 per 100,000. If you look at the most dangerous neighborhoods, the most dangerous neighborhood in that city, which was West Garfield Park in 2019, their homicide rate was 131 per 100,000. If you compare that to the 28 safest neighborhoods in the city of Chicago that year, their collective homicide rate was less than two per 100,000. For some of those neighborhoods, for, for a good chunk of those neighborhoods, the homicide rate was zero per 100,000. And so we have this enormously unequal distribution of one of the most important um, you know, benefits that our government can provide, and that's public safety. And the reason that I, you know, I think it's important to really understand that is one, again, it contextualizes some of those other disparities that we see in the enforcement data. But two, it allows us to see not just, you know, who bears the costs associated with a robust enforcement program, which is really where all the focus goes in our reform debate right now, but it also allows us to see who enjoys the benefits that are associated with success on criminal justice policy. Right. So when the, the criminal justice system achieves the ends that the system was erected to pursue, crime goes down, but it doesn't go down for everyone in the same way. Right. So if you're a black male, you benefited way more from the 1990s homicide decline than you than a, a white male did. Right. So there was actually a study done on this by a guy named Patrick Sharkey um, and some co-authors that actually looked at the public health benefits associated with the homicide decline between 1991 and 2014. And it added almost an entire year of life expectancy to the average black man's life. It only added about a tenth of a year of life expectancy to the average white man's life. And so the question then becomes is maybe there's something wrong with the narrative of the criminal justice system as a system that was designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities because it looks like when the system works and when the system achieves the mission that is set out by the people at the system's helm, it's low-income minority communities that benefit the most. And that's something that I think has just been completely lost in our public debate. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it. We, we talk a lot about the phrase over incarceration, right? We are putting too many people allegedly in in prison. And this is not something that the only like sort of the social justice left is concerned about, right? Um, this is something where, you know, libertarians have weighed in on this, even some conservative organizations and everyone's sort of accepting this premise that we put too many people in jail and that's a problem. So um, how many people are, are incarcerated in the American system? Um, how does that compare to other countries? 
And what is the typical profile of somebody who is uh, incarcerated by our justice system? In other words, we've talked some about the, the racial disparities, um, but but what is, you know, sort of the what's the rap sheet? What's the, yeah. um, you know, what's the typical crime? What What is like what characterizes the population uh, of our prisons? Yeah. So if you're looking at, um, you know, incarceration in the United States, um, one of the things that you often hear um, reformers and critics of incarceration say is that, you know, you hear this one statistic, United States accounts for about 5% of the world's population, but is home to about 25% of the world's prisoners. And, and that's true. And it sounds awful when you hear it, right? It's, it's got this huge rhetorical force. Um, but one of the things that that kind of analysis doesn't really account for is the fact that the United States is an outlier when it comes to really serious crime, crime that you know, if you were caught and convicted in any country in the world would land you in prison. So it's not necessarily the case that the United States has a, a just more punitive system. It just has a lot more criminals. Um, and, you know, so so that that's going to explain a lot of the disparities in terms of international comparisons on the incarceration front. So here in the U.S., we have somewhere around 1.8 million people incarcerated. Um, about 1.1, 1.2 million of those people are in prison. Um, the rest are in, uh, you know, county jails. Um, a, a good chunk of those people are just there for very short periods of time awaiting trials So people who didn't make bail, who are entering jail for one or two days until they make bail, um, you know, maybe a week, or people who are just being held in pretrial detention, um, either as a result of not being able to make bail or as, you know, a result of being remanded and denied bail altogether. And then you have a small portion of the jail population that's sentenced, which is to say that these are people who are serving sentences for misdemeanors that do not exceed one year, right? So you, know, you get 30 days or 90 days, um, you know, for, say for a DUI or something like that. So those people are serving their sentences in jail. Um, but if you look at the prison population, which is really where a lot of the focus lies, mostly because it's the biggest population and, you know, these are the people who are spending the most time incarcerated, um, you, know, you start to get a sense of why the sort of more superficial critiques of uh, incarceration in the United States fall flat. I mean, for one thing, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in prisons in the United States today uh, are there for serious violent offenses, right? So if you're just looking at state prisoners, which accounts for about nine out of every 10 prisoners in the U.S., um, uh, about 60% of them uh, are in primarily for either a violent felony or a weapons felony. Um, which is, you know, uh, a pretty big, uh, pretty big chunk. So these are people who are serving time primarily for really, really serious crimes, crimes, again, you know, that would land you in prison almost anywhere in the world, right? So if you're talking about weapons offenses, for example, uh, in the United Kingdom, the mandatory minimum for illegal gun possession is five years, of which you have to serve three and a half years. Um, that's an offense that's regularly met with sentences of probation here in the United States. Um, so again, it's just not necessarily the case that we're more punitive. Uh, it's just that we have a lot more of the kind of serious crime that, that would land you in prison. So you know, the majority of people in state prison here in the United States are serving time primarily for violent offenses. And even then, they're not serving that much time. I think the median amount of time served um, in, in a, a state prison here in the U.S. is about 16 months. Uh, so not, not a very long time. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like to say is that, you know, prison is a relatively rare sanction that's often short term in nature and that is reserved for really violent, really chronic offenders who have a really high likelihood of reoffending um, if and when they're released. And so on the rare point, when the, the reason I say it's rare is because if you look at, you know, the, the trends in felony convictions 
and the results of those convictions, what you'll find is that only about 40% of felony convictions at the state level result in a post-conviction uh, term of incarceration. Um, and so that's meaning that, that, that about 60% of state felony convictions either result in um, uh, you know, time served in pretrial detention or probation or diversion or suspended sentences. So it's not even the case that prison is the most common response to a state felony conviction. Um, you know, I've already established that the, the majority of, of these uh, individuals are serving time primarily for violent felonies. So things like homicides, which I think accounts for about 15% uh, of, of the prison population, robbery, rape, uh, sexual assault, um, you know, aggravated assault, um, things like arson, um, you know, and weapons violations, um, which is about 5% of the, the prison population. If you look at, you know, uh, things like drugs, you know, you're only talking about 14 to 13% of the state uh, prison population, which isn't, you know, nothing. It's not a small chunk. But one of the things you have to remember is that the way that our prison statistics work is that we categorize prisoners based on the top charge. So based on the offense that um, uh, carries the most prison time. So if you are convicted of multiple offenses, right, say you have an illegal uh, handgun on your waist when you're pulled over and they find a kilo of cocaine in your trunk, well, you might get more time for the kilo of cocaine. And so the system is going to categorize you as a drug offender as opposed to a weapons offender, even though you were also convicted of the drug charge. So you kind of have to take our um, incarceration statistics with a little bit of a grain of salt on that account. The other thing is, is that our official conviction statistics don't necessarily reflect the severity of the conduct that was actually engaged in by the offender, because we know about 95% of all um, felony cases are resolved via plea bargain, um, which means that those are, are negotiations in which prosecutors either drop charges altogether or downgrade the severity of charges in exchange for guilty pleas. And so the official records often understate the actual crimes that were committed. So, you know, and even then, again, the majority of people in prison are serving time primarily for serious violent felonies um, and uh, or weapons offenses. So so that's really important. But then, you know, you get into the chronic part. I mean, these are people who end up in state prison are not first time offenders. These are not sort of low risk propositions. My, my colleague at the Manhattan Institute, Heather McDonald, had a great line a few years back where she said a multi-year prison sentence is akin to a lifetime achievement award for persistence in criminal offending. Um, and she's exactly right about that. And the reason for that is, is because if you were to profile the typical person who gets released from a state prison in the United States, you're going to see someone who has somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and between five and six prior convictions. That is not uh, a, a sort of low-level, low-risk offender, right? These are people who are offending at really high rates, um, rates that are much higher than their, you know, uh, criminal history suggests. Because again, the majority of crime uh, that gets committed doesn't get reported, and the majority of crime that actually gets reported doesn't result in an arrest. This often comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but you know, for a long time, the FBI, up until 2019, uh, would track. Um, what's called index offenses. So these are eight felony offenses that are kind of seen as indicators of broader crime trends, right? Four of the offenses are violent and four of the offenses are property. So for the four um, uh, violent index felonies, which is um, murder, uh, robbery, aggravated assault, um, and rape, the clearance rate hovered at about 47 to 48% over the last decade. If you look at the property index felonies, so burglary, grand larceny, grand larceny, auto, and arson, the clearance rate only hovered at about 18 to 20%. 
So the majority of both crime categories don't actually even result in an arrest in a given year. So, you know, when you when you're talking about prisoners who have 12 prior arrests, and, you know, five prior convictions, these are people who have engaged in a lot more crime than that. And so, you know, again, not not the most common sanction that we can give when we do give it. It's a relatively short term sanction. It's really only given to people who are really, really violent and or have very extensive criminal histories. And then these people are also very, very likely to be um, rearrested if they are released. So if you look at the recidivism statistics in the United States and you're looking at state prisoners, what you're going to find is that somewhere between 80 and 83 percent of released state prisoners will be rearrested at least once over a 10 year period after their release. On average, they'll be rearrested about five times over that 10-year period. And a good chunk of them, more than a third, will be rearrested for a violent crime specifically. So, you know, we're talking about, when we talk about decarceration, you know, I think the best way to kind of assess whether, in fact, we have this mass incarceration problem is to sort of ask a question based on the logical corollary of how that problem is stated, right? If we have a mass incarceration problem, that by definition requires a mass decarceration solution. So the question becomes, can we safely decarcerate en masse? And that's a question I've yet to hear a good answer um, uh, uh, to, you know, from from people who are advocates of, you know, broad scale decarceration, people, you know, who want to cut the, the incarceration rate by 50% or 40%. You know, the idea that we can release 40 or 50 percent of all people in state prison today without taking a public safety hit is, I think, belied by every single piece of data that we have, especially the recidivism data. Right. So the question becomes, who do you release without actually risking the public safety and not just the general public safety, the safety of the people who are already living in the pockets of concentrated crime that these offenders are much more likely to spend their time in? Um, and, and that's something that I think is, is really kind of, uh, you know, helped me see through the superficial nature of the, um, uh, the most harsh critiques of incarceration in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there is this persistent um, kind of image that uh, all these statistics that you're, you're citing um, really belie, right, which is we have millions of people in prison because they smoked a joint in the alleyway. yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and, and even when we're talking about the First Step Act or the Trump administration, right, that um, he commuted the sentence of Alice Johnson. And there was a big you know, praise from sort of bipartisan praise over that. And I don't disagree that, you know, a commutation of her, her sentence after 20 years was unreasonable, especially given that she seemed to have like really, um, you know, changed in prison. And right. I, I don't think that case itself is unreasonable, but it, it does strike me that uh, the the friendliest case they could come up with to, to be the sort of poster child for these kinds of releases is somebody who did something much more serious than like doing drugs individually, you know, in her right. house or or even like selling selling drugs in her alleyway. I mean, she was she was running uh, multimillion dollars worth of cocaine uh, through into the United States working with with cartels, right? Violent cartels. Yeah. And this was this was sort of the, the best poster case. Um for for releasing um, when the the sort of image that the, that is is continually put forward by these advocates is the you know the kid who's you know getting a little um, you know a, a little rambunctious at a, you know at age nineteen gets caught like you know selling weed to his friends or something like that right and right. and there just aren't it seems like you're saying there just aren't that many. There's very few cases like that that actually result in in serious prison time. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just a huge delta between the sort of prototypical case that, you know, gets seized on by reform advocates to, you know, kind of make their case and, and the, the sort of typical case that you would actually see if you actually surveyed people who are incarcerated in the U.S. today. And yeah, you're, you're not looking at these low-level first-time offenders. I mean, you know, the, the narrative is that we sort of systematically deny second chances. But again, that's completely belied by the criminal history profile of the person, you know, of the typical person in prison in the United States today. These are not people who have been denied second chances. They've been given third, fourth, fifth, tenth chances, and they've blown them. Um, you know, and, and then the question becomes, it's like, you know, what what exactly are we doing by advocating for the mass release or the mass non-incarceration of individuals with this kind of criminal history? And I think the answer to that is that you're essentially rolling the dice with the lives and the quality of life of people who are living in those pockets of concentrated crime. Um, and, and that's not good. I mean, you know, even something like like drug dealing, you know, it's not a, a harmless offense, right? I mean, you know, we have the impact of, of overdoses, which are nearing all time highs in this country right now. Um, you know, lots of people were very, very outraged at pharmaceutical companies for, you know, their role, alleged role in, in sort of spreading misinformation about the addictiveness of opiates like Oxycontin and, and, you know, and attached a lot of culpability to those companies for things like, um, you know, uh, increases in, in opiate overdoses. But, you know, yet that same sort of moral judgment never seems to carry over to people who are running drug distribution rings, even though they're putting these fatal doses of fentanyl right into the hands of people who then inject them into their arms and, and sometimes don't make it out the other side of that high. Um, and so, you know, these aren't necessarily low level uh, offenders. And, you know, the other thing I would just remind people is that even if you're talking about drug offenders, which is you know the group that gets the most attention in these reform debates, you're talking about people for whom there's a lot of overlap with respect to, you know, other serious kinds of crime, right? Like the, the idea that criminals just specialize in these very discrete offense categories isn't quite right, right? I mean, so if you look at drug offenders, for example, in state prisons, and you look at the recidivism data, what you'll find is that about 75% of people who are incarcerated primarily for a drug offense will be rearrested for at least one non-drug crime. Right. About a third of them will be rearrested for a violent crime specifically. And there's not actually a huge delta between the share of, of drug offenders who get rearrested for violence and the share of violent offenders who get rearrested for violence. Um, and, and you see this in different statistics throughout the country. Right. So in, in Baltimore, for example, in 2017, the police identified, I think, close to 118 or 120 homicide suspects. Seven in 10 had at least one prior drug offense in their criminal histories. And I think that if you were to sort of take a random sample of 100 homicide offenders from every major city in the country, you'd find that that's about representative. Right. A good chunk of these people are also engaged in the drug trade. And, you know, it, one of the other reasons I bring that up is because I think one of the misunderstandings about drug enforcement in the U.S. is is that people view it as something that was motivated primarily um, by efforts to reduce drug consumption and drug dealing. And that's, I think, true a little bit. But I, I think people miss the degree to which drug enforcement was motivated and seen by enforcement officials as a way to pretextually attack violent crime because of the overlap, right? Because police officials um, knew 
that a lot of the individuals engaged in the drug trade were also engaged in more serious kinds of violent street crime, that they could go after them for drug offenses in order to gain public safety benefits by taking these individuals off the street for those drug offenses. So if you look at, you know, some of the really successful gang sweep prosecutions that have been done, you know, in cities like New York and Chicago over the years, um, you know, the RICO cases, a lot of what those, a lot of the predicate offenses for those cases involve drugs. And yet, you'll see that a lot of the individuals swept up in those cases also have violent histories or were, you know, tied to other kinds of of violent crime, like conspiracy to commit murder. And so, you know, this is drug enforcement is it's important to just not take for granted the idea that just because someone's in prison for drugs that you can sort of consider them a quote unquote nonviolent drug offender, right? Like these categories are not static people, you know, who are, in for nonviolent drug offenses today may commit a very violent offense tomorrow and have often committed very violent offenses in the past. And, and so it's really important to, to sort of understand that because it, I think, helps you get a better sense of, of that history of drug enforcement and, and its importance, right? I mean, like the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 is a really good example of this, right? This was a piece of federal legislation that established the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Um, and people often point to that as a sort of prima facie example of, you know, racism built into the drug enforcement regime uh, here in the United States because crack cocaine was so much more prominent um, in black communities as compared to powder cocaine, which was much more prominent in white communities. But you, know, you sort of dig into the history and you start to see that the reason that, that disparity existed wasn't out of some conspiracy to, you know, harm black Americans, but was out of a recognition that a lot of there was a lot of violence that attended the crack cocaine trade that you didn't see um, in the more suburban areas. And so, you know, that is what what really explained the disparity, which, by the way, enjoyed a lot of support in the black community at that time. And people don't don't really know this. But if you go back into the legislative history uh, of that bill, what you'll find is that it was co-sponsored, not just voted for, but co-sponsored by 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time. It passed the Senate by a vote of 97 to 3. Right. So so this 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 was not something that you could sort of write off as as just, you know, a, a blatant attempt at racism, but rather a recognition that there was a significant overlap between people who were engaged in the drug trade and people who were engaged in more serious kinds of violent crime. And I think we have to take that understanding with us into, you know, how we understand statistics with respect to that kind of enforcement today. Yeah, so you're you're really making the case that it's more like getting Al Capone for tax evasion than anything right. else. Um <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, on paper, he's a white collar criminal, right? <laughs> um, so I guess I, I want to drill down because you, you have a chapter on root causes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the entire debate, because what, what the picture that you're painting is of America as a, um, a violent, a violent country. Um, yes, super concentrated and, and unevenly distributed, um, but with a high level of violence that other countries simply don't deal with. Um, and then the question becomes why, right? Um, why is it that America has this correspondingly or, or unusually high level of violence? I, I was just reading um, an old New York Times interview with um, um, Raymond Aaron, who was a French uh, sort of Cold War public intellectual um, and he described America as, quote, a violent country with an extraordinary attachment to legal niceties um, mm. and, and basically implied that 
for example, in France that, um, you know, if France were experiencing the level of violence that Americans uh, accepted in their cities, that it simply wouldn't happen. Like some, you know, some kind of Duarte style enforcement would pop up um, and, and we wouldn't continue to observe sort of civil liberties uh, in the face of what, what you're, you're uh, describing as, as basically war zones, right? Um, concentrated war zones in, in America. Um, so why, why is it? It seems like, first of all, what are some of the root causes that you dismiss, in particular poverty? Because, um, you know, we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, AOC, saying, like, oh, crime is up um, in 2020 and 2021 because people need to steal an apple to feed their kids, right? Yeah, um, right. Yeah. And, and, and somehow you have to shoot people to do that, right? That's, uh, yeah, and, right. and I think that's like a persistent um, – association between poverty and crime in part because it's seemingly since the 1960s and 70s um, it's hard to think of of poverty without these kinds of high endemic crime levels like poor neighborhoods seem to have higher crime is has that always been the case um and and what is the actual relationship between poverty and crime and since the 1960s yeah i mean look there's there's certainly an association between poverty and crime which is to say that you know if you were to sort of look at criminal offending populations particularly when you're talking about like you know violent street crime a huge portion of those offenders are going to be from you know lower uh, uh you know income and socioeconomic strata um but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the direction of causation, right? And this is, I think, where the, the kind of rubber meets the, the road in this debate, right? Like, yes, it's true that a big portion of criminal offenders are also, you know, um, people who have uh, lower levels of socioeconomic status. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the lower level of socioeconomic status caused the crime, right? It could also be, and I think very likely is, uh, the case that the sort of disposition that, you know, leads someone to see a life of crime as sort of a viable way of living is also not associated with economic success in our society. Um, and the reason that I think that's the case is because if you look at, you know, trends in poverty and other socioeconomic indicators, you don't see those trends track neatly with violence, right? So, you know, for example, in 1989 in New York City, the poverty rate in our city was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016. Now, why do I pick those two years out? I pick those two years out because 1989 is the year before New York City peaked in terms of homicides, experiencing 2,262 in 1990, and 2016 is the year before we hit our valley with homicides of 292. And so you have a 90% reduction in homicides, while the poverty rate remains pretty flat over that entire period, hovering from, you know, just under 19% uh, to uh, just over 21% in that period, and actually moves in the wrong direction slightly, which is to say, again, that the, the 2016 poverty rate was was uh, slightly higher than it was uh, in 1989. And yet, you know, you have a significantly lower uh, homicide count. And you see the same thing with respect to other socioeconomic indicators like unemployment, for example, right? We had the Great Recession in this country not all that long ago. Uh, you know, between 2006 and 2010, the unemployment rate basically doubled um, at the national level, and yet the homicide rate declined by 15% over those years. You, you don't see this kind of consistent um, relationship. Barry Latzer, who's a, a great researcher in this space, um, wrote this fantastic book on the rise and fall of violent crime in America, where he looks at violent crime trends in post-World War II America up to about 2015, um, and also looks at the potential relationship between 
those crime numbers and other socioeconomic indicators. And one of the things that he finds is something called crime adversity mismatch, which is basically a, a term that describes the following phenomena where you have you know, two groups that are both afflicted with high rates of poverty and lower socioeconomic status, and yet really large disparities between those two groups in terms of violent criminal offending, right? So in New York City, for example, um, Hispanic New Yorkers experience poverty at a significantly higher rate than Black New Yorkers. Same thing for Asian New Yorkers. And yet Black New Yorkers are involved in violent crime at significantly higher rates than both of those groups. Um, so all of that kind of complicates the sort of simple story that I think, um, you know, people want to tell about the relationship between poverty and crime. And I think the reason that they want to tell it is because they're so uncomfortable with the kind of enforcement that has produced public safety gains in recent years, um, that they are trying desperately to find other alternative answers. And the best answer that they can come up with is social spending as a means of reducing crime. And, you know, I think that the question that you should be asking in response to that is like, I mean, we've spent trillions of dollars on anti-poverty programs over the last several decades. And how has that helped the locales that are, again, are currently experiencing all-time highs with respect to homicides and shootings and other kinds of serious violent crimes, right? I think it has been borne out that we do not need to solve um, poverty in order to reduce crime significantly. We saw that throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and it's also been borne out that social spending on crime is not um, an, an obvious solution. Uh, it's not a solution at all. There's, there's just no clear relationship uh, that people can point to. So, you know, when I lay all that out, people will then say, well, then what do you think uh, the root causes are? And, you know, look, I think that's a complicated question. You know, it's not one that I'm super concerned about. My main concern right now is just doing what we know will work to reduce crime in the short term, because I think we owe it to the communities that are suffering um, to do that. But, you know, one of the things that I think we have to look at is family structure. Um, you know, there's been a significant uh, change in family structure since the 1960s, um, where we see a much, much higher uh, rate of single uh, parenthood of out of wedlock child rearing. Um, why do I think that's important? Because I think the psychological literature tells us pretty clearly that, you know, two pro-social parents are better than one. Right. And why is that? Well, because one of the most important functions that parents serve is the socialization of our children. Now, Parents are much more likely to succeed in socializing children um, if they are both pro-social in their disposition and they're both present. Um, if that socialization process breaks down, what, one of the things that you start to see is that, you know, kids at a very young age will start to develop conduct disorders. And a good proportion of those kids um, will have those conduct disorders kind of metastasize over time into more serious kinds of personality disorders over the life course. And that process is much more likely to break down that socialization process if you have, you know, a kid being raised in a single mom household. Um, and, and that's just a conversation that very few people want to have, but I think it's a really important one to have. Um, again, for those reasons, I mean, lots of people kind of have it in their head that sort of humans are, are born intrinsically good and the ones that go bad were sort of taught to go bad or influenced um, down the wrong path. I think that kind of has it backwards. I think the research pretty clearly shows that most people are born with antisocial dispositions, right? And then we're, what we're taught by our parents is, is how to resist that 
temptation, right? How to resist that natural tendency to use violence to get what we want and to use coercion, um, right? And, and, and we call that the socialization process, right? Like if you take a, a toy away from a toddler, you know, his first instinct is going to be to swing at you, right? We, we don't sort of think of it that way, but, but these are actually some of the most violent people in our society today. They just can't do that much damage, Right. But over over those periods of years, our parents tell us, like, no, you don't hit, you use your words, you you know, you don't bite, you don't take things that don't belong to you, you share. Right. And so over that process, um, you know, the kids are kind of socialized out of those tendencies. But that process takes a lot of work and it takes dedication and it often takes two parents to be very successful. So I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, over time we've seen this big boom um, in single parenthood. Um, and there are a lot of challenges um, that communities in which single parenthood is significantly higher um, uh, uh, with respect to crime, right? So like a lot of, uh, I'm actually working on a, a paper right now, um, looking at the relationship between family structure and crime. One of the things that we're seeing is that high crime areas tend to have much higher rates of single parenthood. And I don't think those two things are, are unrelated. Um, and then there's, you know, culture. I, I think, you know, there's certainly a cultural element to crime, um, you know, that we don't talk a ton about. But, you know, there is there are certainly pockets of concentrated crime in this country in which, you know, the culture there elevates violence as a legitimate means of respect acquisition and a legitimate means of dispute resolution. And, you know, this isn't my idea. This isn't a new idea. You know, one book that I, I would really recommend that your listeners read is um, called Code of the Street. It's a, a book by... Um, an anthropologist named Elijah Anderson, and he kind of does this sort of deep dive anthropological assessment of North Philadelphia in the early 1990s and sort of documents this sort of set of mores that um, kind of govern everyday life. And, um, you know, it, it, it aligns with, I think, uh, you know, uh, at least a partial cultural theory of crime. And so those are two things that I think, you know, we should be considering in this debate as, as you know, potential root causes. And, you know, one of the, uh, I guess, um, depressing aspects of that is that if those two things are, in fact, at the root of some significant portion of our crime problem, there's, those are two things that the government is not very well positioned to do anything about, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know that the government has the tools or the know-how to, um, you know, solve the out-of-wedlock birth rate problem. I don't know that the government really knows what the right culture is, let alone how to sort of institute that. And so it's a real challenge, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, my focus and the focus of my colleagues at the Manhattan Institute has been on sort of providing concrete answers for public safety provision that have to do with the things that we know work. And that is, you know, enforcement that is intelligent and deployed um, through the use of data and informed by, you know, um, learned assessment. Yeah, um, you're anticipating where I want to go because, you know, there was the, we talk all the time, we have been always referencing, right, the, um, we've been referencing the 80s and 90s, right? And this crime spike that really shows up in the in the late 60s into the 70s, right? That begins this trajectory upward. Um, when previously, like we always talk about crime statistics, we always basically started in the 1960s. Now, that may be because there, there wasn't as much recorded or something, right. but my impression is that crime before that, even in urban areas, right, was not as much of a high social problem um, in, in the way that it is now. Of course, you had, you know, organized crime or in the 1920s and so on and so forth. But like, 
um, there seems to be this explosion in just general public safety going in the tank um, after essentially the Cultural Revolution. And and I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, one, is that true? Is that impression true that, that our sort of modern battle with crime um, starts basically concurrently with a series of, of cultural upheavals in the 1960s um, and, and whether uh, there's, there's, cause you have almost a psychological uh, interpretation of crime more than, yeah. or the cause of crime more than I, I guess both, right. Psychological and cultural. Um, and you even, you use this phrase um, about entitlement, right. Cause you just yeah. reference these kinds of uh, personality disorders or, um, and and it seems to me that our culture is very much encouraging of entitlement, even if it doesn't come out violently, right? As in, there's a zillion articles written about the psychological profile of successful successive generations and a rise in entitlement mentality. Now, in your upper class girls, you know, neighborhood, you're, that's going to come out in a, a series of, of different things than it is, um, you know, for young boys without fathers, right? Um, but how tied in is this this entire sort of um, cultural revolution and the spirit of 1968 with this this battle that we now take for granted, this sort of battle for public safety in urban areas? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do think that the battle really did start in the 1960s. That's kind of, you know, when criminologists say that the, the crime wave that lasted through the early 1990s really began. Um, I think part of it is just a function of the sort of demographic shift in our country where we became a much more urban uh, nation, right? We had this, you know, huge push toward urbanization starting in the 1920s, you know, as a result of, of the technological revolution that happened, right? I mean, you know, we went from a time in which lots of people were working in more rural parts of the country in the agricultural space. Um, and then there was a sort of economic shift um, that moved a lot of people into cities because that's where the work was. And, you know, we had more factories and sort of more technological and service based, um, you know, employment that um, brought a lot of people into American cities. And, you know, cities are much more conducive to crime. Sorry, I'll cut that out. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, yeah, so cities are much more conducive to crime uh, than more rural or exurban areas. Um, you know, for crime to thrive, I'm a sort of subscriber to the routine activities theory of crime, right? So for crime to thrive, you need three things. You need the presence of motivated offenders, you need the presence of vulnerable targets and you need the absence of capable guardians. Um, you know, those things are much more likely to be present in denser cities than in, you know, sort of more rural environments, right? If you are in a very small town in the South in the 1950s, it, there's a good chance that everyone kind of knows everyone, right? So it's hard to sort of rob somebody and have that person not know who you are and then be able to get away and not get caught by the police, right? When the country shifts into kind of more dense urban living, that urban environment provides you with the kind of level of anonymity that you need to get away with street level crimes like robberies and rapes and aggravated assaults, um, you know, where you can kind of commit a crime and then disappear into a crowd, um, you know, a la Anthony Hopkins at the end of, uh, um, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting the name of the Silence movie. Silence of the Lambs. Uh, of the Lambs yeah. That's right. Um, you know, but um, so, so that I think certainly played a role was the, the sort of, just shift in terms of urbanization and the, a bigger chunk of our population living in cities uh, and in environments in which you, know, you kind of had many more 
um, uh, motivated offenders coming into contact with vulnerable targets. And at a time where we didn't really invest in the sort of capable guardianship um, in the form of policing and you know, didn't have the kind of technology like CCTV cameras that we have today, um, you know, that, that really raise the transaction costs of, of crime in urban environments. I think that was part of it. I think other demographic shifts were part of it too. I and mean, we had this boom after the war where, you know, uh, lots of we had the baby boom and you, know, so you had lots of, you know, sort of young men uh, coming, uh, you know, into their late teens and early 20s in the 1960s, um, you know, and that's the population that's often responsible for the bulk of crime, right? Like more than nine out of every 10 prisoners in, in the United States are, are male. That's a disparity that very few people talk about, but, you know, it's just a reality, right? Like men are, are, are just much more likely to be Criminal. So, you know, that does coincide with the kind of cultural revolution that happened in the 60s, but it's hard to say whether it was that cultural revolution that really drove this or whether it was, you know, the, the sort of shift toward urban living, I think is probably like most things, a little bit of everything. Um, you know, and, and in terms of the culture, you know, I, I think you're exactly right with this idea of entitlement. I mean, you know, I've, I, in the book, we talk about, I talk about entitlement in sort of the clinical sense, right? And the way that the DSM talks about entitlement as sort of a psychological marker. Um, and it, it's true, I do view crime through, you know, a, a mostly psychological lens. And one of the reasons for that is you mentioned the personality disorders, right? And this is another reason, I think, to be more skeptical of the sort of poverty story of crime is that more common than poverty among prisoners is a personality disorder. So if you look at, you know, the general population of men, for example, in the United States, something like antisocial personality disorder has a prevalence rate of between two and 4%, right? Depending on the, um, the analysis that you're looking at. If you're looking at surveys of prisoners and studies of, of uh, um, you know, prison settings, what you'll find is that that number ranges between 40 and 70%. So that it is a huge, huge disparity. And what that tells me is that um, things like personality disorders, things like substance use disorders are far more predictive of crime than, you know, economic deprivation. We have lots of poor people in this country. The majority of them, the vast majority of them are good law-abiding citizens who, you know, live their lives well and with dignity. The vast majority of poor people in any community don't go out and commit crime. So it is, you know, I think uh, kind of disparaging. To, to the good people uh, in this country who don't have, you know, means to say that, you know, oh, poverty just naturally leads to crime. That's just, you know, not the case. I think a more serious explanation, um, you know, uh, leaves a lot of room for the role of these sort of psychological conditions. And again, I think that those psychological conditions are really closely tied to that developmental process that happens in early childhood. And I think that is very closely tied to family structure. Um, and so that's something that I, I don't think we can get away from if we're really going to sort of get to the root of, of, of what actually drives more serious kinds of crime. So I'd be remiss if I don't close this organization, this, this conversation um, by talking about police um, itself, yeah. right? Policing as, as a, a function of public safety. Um, you know, your dad was a cop. Um, you, you've talked about how uh, he reacted to you potentially becoming a police officer. Yeah. Um, you know, do you worry that, you know, what Heather McDonald has called, right, the Ferguson effect? Um, but I think in, in recent years, a combination of, of sort of the, the quote unquote racial reckoning in 2020, um, as well as, I, I think I have to say here, um, vaccine mandates in cities, right? 
Um, we've yeah. seen a real difficulty in recruiting police and probably consequently in the quality of people who are actually being recruited into these departments. Um, are you worried about the, I guess the other, the opposite question is that I, I'm guessing you often get, right? You probably often yeah. get the question about the prevalence of, of police brutality, right? Um, yeah. But I'm asking almost the opposite question, which is, are we going to be able to recruit going forward a class of, of competent, you know, uh, stable, like personality-wise um, people uh, who are going to fill this very important role in public safety going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be probably the biggest challenge for policing as an institution for the next decade. Um, it certainly has been among the biggest challenges for that institution, really, since even before the pandemic, um, you know, as early as 2019, um, organizations like the Police Executive Research Forum were putting out research calling attention to the workforce crisis. Um, and, you know, in the mid uh 20-teens, we started seeing departments around the country lower standards, get rid of, you know, tattoo bans, um, you know, stop considering prior drug use as, uh, you know, uh, disqualifying for, for potential officer recruits. And that was all in response to, you know, the difficulty of recruiting officers. And one of the things that we've seen really since 2000. Uh, you know, 15 is that we've really raised the transaction cost of a, of a career in policing. And, and what I mean by that is we made it more costly in the following ways. Um, you know, especially in blue cities, police, I think, not unreasonably feel like they have a target on their back, which is to say that, you know, progressive DAs who are trying to make a name for themselves, progressive lawmakers and politicians, uh, I think, sort of feel like they need to you know, get a cop on the hook whenever they can. So we've seen this push, you know, for more quote unquote accountability. Like I'm not against accountability. I don't think anyone's against actual accountability. I think the worry is, is that what gets termed accountability is really just, you know, uh, singling out police for unfair treatment because it's politically convenient to do so. And so, you know, for example, we have the, the diaphragm law that got passed here in New York City, which criminalizes the placement of even accidental uh, force on the chest or back or neck of a suspect, even if that suspect's resisting. Um, and, you know, it makes it a, a, a crime for the police to, to do that, even if it's accidental. Um, so, you know, that's just an, ex an example in which I think, you know, sort of police are starting to feel like they are being put behind the eight ball in a way that puts them in more legal jeopardy. We've seen lots of efforts to, um, some successful efforts to get rid of things like qualified immunity and um, you know, other, um, you know, things that, that just may make a career in policing more costly for that individual. Um, obviously, there's the, the risk of being sort of um, tried and convicted in the court of public opinion if you are involved in, you know, a sort of viral force incident, even if you're completely in the right, right? I mean, we saw that with the, um, uh, the shooting of the young girl in, in Ohio who was just about to stab another girl when a police officer shot and, and, and killed her. And, and yet, you know, despite the very clear video evidence that she was about to use deadly force against another unarmed woman uh, when she was shot, the police officer was still plastered all over the front page of newspapers and people were calling for his head. And, you know, LeBron James, I think, put his, you know, his, his information out there to, to millions of followers. And, and so, you know, there's this sense that, you know, policing just isn't really worth it. And what that I think has translated into is that lots of people who have options, People with high levels of education, people with high levels of psychological stability are 
choosing other options except a career in policing. And, you know, what we see, I think, in urban departments, especially where those risks are a little more pronounced, is that police officers in those departments are actively retiring early, resigning altogether or leaving for jobs at, you know, more in more suburban environments where I think they perceive the risk um, to be lower, where they perceive the support level to be higher in terms of public support and political support. And I think what that means over time is that the quality of the median police officer in American cities is going to go down. And ironically, what that means is that we're going to see more problematic um, uses of force. We're going to see more mistakes in the field. Um, and that's just going to kind of create this cycle where people can then, you know, who are critics of police will point to those mistakes that are a result of this sort of decline in the quality of the median recruit and then use that to demonize the institution further. Um, and that's a real shame because I think the professionalization of the institution of policing is one of the, you know, really great success stories of urban America um, over the last, you know, 30 years. I mean, policing in the 1960s, 70s, and even 80s was seen as kind of just a blue collar city job, you know, no real, not really different from being, you know, um, you know, a garbage man or something like that. Um, but it became a profession it became something that required education and, you know, it became something that really recognized the, the honor and the responsibility that came with a government issued badge and gun. And we saw this, you know, radical, uh, you know, shift upward in the quality of, you know, police officers around the country. And, you know, that's evident in the, the use of force statistics, right? I mean, take the NYPD, for example. In 1971, when the department started keeping track, I think they shot more than 220 people. They killed almost 100. Um, I think in 2021, there were only 36 firearms discharges um, by NYPD officers. I think they killed less than 10 individuals. Um, you know, they use force in uh, about 3% of all arrests. That's, you know, um, it's a very different picture um, than, than what you've seen. And, you know, what really makes me sad is that I think at the root of a lot of the demonization um, that is driving this sort of lack of enthusiasm among potential recruits for a career in policing, that that criticism, that demonization is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding or mischaracterization of use of force and, and what that actually looks like. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's just really important for people to understand that despite the narrative that we've all been kind of spoon fed by legacy media outlets that, you know, police use of force is the likely outcome of a police citizen encounter, particularly if the citizen is black. Um, it's just false. It's just false. It's not supported by the data at all. I mean, if you look at deadly force in particular, I did an analysis that I, I talk about in the book where I look at 2018 data and I estimated the police in this country fired their weapons in about 3000 occasions um, that year, which sounds like a lot. It's about, you know, six to eight shootings every day, but Police made 10.3 million arrests that year. We had 700,000 cops almost uh, in this country. They had about 75 million public contacts, right? So, in the context of in the context of you know 10.3 million arrests, 3,000 firearm discharges um, is not very high. That means police are using deadly force in 0.03 percent of arrests. Right. And if you look at non-deadly force, it's it you know the 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 case for a police violence problem doesn't really get much stronger. Again, I, as I mentioned, the NYPD only used force in I think three percent of arrests in 2021. That was a year in which the department fielded 6.4 million calls for service. They made 166,000 criminal arrests. Right, and that's kind of you know the higher end of, of force rates that, that I've seen. There was another study that I talk about in the book from 2018 um, that looked at three different police departments: one in North Carolina, one in Louisiana, and one in Arizona over a two-year period. 
those three police departments collectively fielded over a million calls for service and made over 114,000 criminal arrests. They used force in just one out of every 128 arrests, meaning that more than 99% of the arrests in that data set went off without the use of any force whatsoever. And in 98% of the cases in which force was used, there was no or mild injury to the suspect. This is based on expert medical examinations of the suspect's records on intake at the county jail. And in that entire data set, there was just one fatal police shooting. And so you know, one of the, the, the sort of themes of, of my work in the book um, is that there is a, a disparity between what the narrative posits and what reality tells us. Um, and I think the perpetuation of that disparity has been completely destructive in so far as it has driven the police recruitment and retention crisis in so far as it has given a lot of momentum to the more misguided uh, elements of the the criminal justice reform movement. And all of that collectively has done two things. One, it has raised the transaction cost of enforcing the law in this country. And two, it has lowered the transaction cost of breaking the law in this country. And when you raise the transaction cost of one thing and you lower the transaction cost of another thing, you get less of the thing for which you raise the cost and you get more of the thing for which you lower the cost. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that from 2015 on, we've started to see elevated levels of violence, nor do I think it's a coincidence that from that point on, we've started to see lower levels of police enforcement, um, incarcerations, uh, you know, jail, uh, uh, jail um, uh, entries, etc. So, you know, I think we're, we're just moving in the wrong direction. Um, I hope that we are all um, smart enough uh, and, and sort of remember our history well enough so that the pendulum swings back toward equilibrium sooner than, you know, it did in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, which, you know, it took us almost 30 years of, of, of resurgent crime uh, to kind of get tough again. Um, I don't think that'll be the case this time around, but, you know, the hope is that we just do it quickly, more efficiently, and that we don't overshoot the mark the way that we did in the 1990s. You know, that's something that, you know, I probably don't say enough, but, you know, I, I, th- I do think it's important to recognize that the reform movement enjoys some of its momentum because, you know, to some degree or another, we overcorrected in the punitive direction. Um, but that kind of overcorrection becomes more likely the further we let, you know, the crime and public safety picture deteriorate. Yeah. Um, what what did your father, because you, you took the, the police exam, right? Yeah. Um, and you yeah. were choosing between going into policing and going into, a, a, you, I think you ended up going to law school. So, you know, did. What, what did your father tell you when you started to think about going into his profession? I mean, he basically, you know, threatened not to talk to me. I mean, he was very upset by the idea. I mean, and the case that he made is something that, you know, would sound very familiar to you if you were reading exit interviews of police officers leaving urban departments today. I mean, he was basically saying like, look, you're taking a real risk with your career and your life. I mean, God forbid you're involved in a controversial use of force. You're going to get plastered on the front page of the newspaper. The politicians aren't going to have your back. They'll throw you under the bus. You know, and if you're lucky, all that will happen is that you, you'll you lose your job. And if you're not lucky, you may get prosecuted or sued into oblivion. And, you know, and for what? Right. To serve a community where you're going to get spit on on a daily basis or, you know, where no one's going to say thank you. And, you know, it, it was really sad because I know that, you know, policing was something that he loved and it was a part of his life that he I think he is still really proud of. But I think even back then, this was 2010, he saw the writing on the wall and, you know, didn't want 
me to take that risk. And he saw it as a risk more than anything else. And, you know, I think that really has to change if we're going to get to a point in which the best and brightest are doing the job that carries with it the most responsibility, arguably, of any other government job that you can take. Well, thank you very much, Rafael Mangual. His book is uh, Criminal Injustice. You can buy that everywhere, Amazon, all, all sorts of places. He, he's over, his other work is over at the Manhattan Institute. Um, thank you so much, Rafael, for coming on High Noon. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stetman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stetman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.